Each year we celebrate the Reformation of the Church in order to reflect upon its importance and its incredible impact upon Western civilization as well as its impact upon the entire world. Our Old Covenant reading coming from the Psalm, Psalm chapter 12, Psalm 12, the fullness of the text. By inspiration of God, the psalmist writes, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. For the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Peter writing to us in his second epistle, the second epistle of St. Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. There came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Thus far as reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. After years of study, service, and a long period of agonizing and soul-searching, an obscure German monk set out to engage other theologians in what he called the 95 Thesis. And these 95 theological points were what he considered critical for the health, reformation, and legacy of the church. The document listed a series of questions relating to doctrines and practices that were taught and enforced by the Church of Rome, which were either contradicted by Scripture or could not be confirmed by Scripture. And so on October 31st, 1517, 505 years ago, during the festival of All Saints Day, Martin Luther nailed his request for a theological debate, and that's what it was. It was going to be a theological debate among theologians on the door of the Rittenberg Church. And since the document was originally supposed to be only a debate among theologians, it was written in the tongue of the academics in Latin, but it was quickly translated into the common tongue for everyone to read. Now, while many herald this event as the beginning of the European Reformation, I believe that Martin Luther's work was only the accelerant 
of what had been brewing as a small fire for years before when men like Wycliffe and Huss really were the beginning minds and voices of the Reformation. And yet it was Martin Luther's challenge that set all of Europe aflame and eventually the world. It was set ablaze with accurate insights speaking of the Word of God, what the truth was. He wanted to know what does God's Word say in light of Rome's Doctrines, And even though it was Luther that is credited with the beginning of the European Reformation, the real power of the Reformation came from men like Calvin and Vire, Bayes of Bullinger and, and Knox. Now the sad reality of the Lutheran theology was that it was truncated, focusing only on individual salvation and the errors of the Roman Church, but it failed to address all of society with the law word of God. Luther believed that the Word of God was only for individuals and the family and the church. But it was not to be spread out there in the political arena or in the arena of the government. Luther believed what is commonly known today as two-kingdom theology. He posited in his theological understanding that the kingdom of Christ concerned itself only with the church, the people of the church. But the culture was to be left to the kingdom of man and the devil. And as a result, Lutheran theology castrated the power of the church where it was no longer militant and triumphant, a a power in the world. He castrated the power of the church as the watchman over the realm of the entire global order that Christ had purchased by his victory at the cross. Now Luther, with all of his genius, he still missed the entire thrust of Christ's comprehensive victory and compartmentalized it into the realm of individuals and the church. In other words, Luther, for all his genius and for all the good that he did, he completely failed to understand the meaning of Psalm 2, Psalm 37, Psalm 110, and the symbolism of Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem and the Great Commission to disciple nations. Now, how were the nations going to bow to the sovereign majesty of Christ if the church was to remain hidden? If the church was no longer going to engage the culture, engage all of the elements of civilization, if the church was to remain silent and inert within the realm of the culture? Now, consider the language of of the scriptures, the total global victory prophesied in the Old Testament, pointing to what Christ will accomplish at his first advent throughout the New Testament. In Psalm 2, notice what God is saying. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, the nations, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. A comprehensive giving to the sun, the cultures of the world. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, they shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Notice, engage the kings, engage the judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. In other words, reconcile with the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Ye princes, ye judges from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Consider Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Very comprehensive. 
And this points to the magisterial rule of the Lord after his ascension and coronation of Daniel 7 when he will fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 2. Notice verse 2 of Psalm 110. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Notice, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And this verse confirms Christ's global leadership and sovereign power as the king of nations. Note verse 3 of Psalm 110 where the saints are brought into the fight, the cultural fight, in order to bring about the righteousness of God's rule and law into a society in chaos and rebellion. Notice, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Verse 4 establishes Christ's priestly authority, whereby he sanctifies the people as his army of saints, for the honor of God and for the conquest of the nations. That's what his role is, to conquer the nations. The Lord had sworn and will not repent that what they priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 5, where it establishes those kings of the earth mentioned in Psalm 2, which he will deal with by his army, who are often referred to as God's threshing instruments. That's what we are. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So it's the army of God, the church of Jesus Christ, with Christ as its captain, that has promised to bring to pass the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, so that ultimately every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the Lord over the lords and he is the king over the kings. These are political statements. These are statements dealing with all of civilization. Now verse 6 of Psalm 110 further establishes Christ as the judge which implies that he is going to judge between right and wrong, good and evil, by his law. Notice, verse 6 and 7, He shall judge among the heathen, or the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. And yet, the scriptures teach us that the saints are to judge the world. We are the judges of the world. And since the organic church is the body of Christ, planted in the earth as his righteous ambassadors, we are to declare to the wicked what is required of them by God's eternal decree. That's our job. Not just preaching to the choir, but going from the armory of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ, into the world to change the world, to transform the world. Notice what Paul tells us. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, he says this. In order to impress upon the Corinthians He's almost astonished when he says this. He says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now the literal Greek does not put a future emphasis on this statement. It simply states that the saints judge the world. Don't ye know that the saints judge the world? Because it's the duty of the saints to judge the world under God by the law of God. We are to call evil, evil, and good, good, according to the standard of the Holy Scripture. And not just among the saints of God, but in the world at large. And this idea of the saints' judgeship was not an original idea with Paul. He was simply repeating what the Old Testament was stating as a future event after Christ empowers his body at Pentecost. Notice Psalm 9, verse 8. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. Notice, he shall judge the world. 
through the mouthpiece the church. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Psalm 96.13 Before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Psalm 98.9 Before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. You see, the entire New Testament era is a time of global judgment and global victory. Through the church. We see this throughout history as well, within the pages of the New Testament, where God's people faced off against the wicked civil magistrates like like Herod, Caesar, and the Pharisees, who were the civil rulers in Christ's day. And so by truncating the mission of God, the church has failed in her commission by allowing the wicked to take dominion over the earthly realm, by remaining silent within the earthly realm, and as a result, giving the earthly realm over to the world instead of taking dominion by the church. Now, once the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms was adopted by many of today's modern Protestant churches, it eroded the entire, the overall commission of the church and eventually caused the church to become a slave to the state. So why is there, at the turn of the year, why is there so much emphasis upon the European Reformation, especially at this time of the year? What made it so powerful? And why did it impact Western civilization the way it did? Moreover, what gave it the endurance to last for more than 500 years? Well, consider first the early church and its impact on society. Now, During the first three centuries of the Christian church, the society of the Roman Empire was controlled by the pagan Caesars. The Pharisees allowed the Caesars total control as long as they could maintain this separate little nation within the nation of Rome. You see, it was the Roman Empire and within the nation of Rome, it was the Hebrew church. The Pharisees allowed the Caesars total control as long as they were left alone. And the Caesars did leave them alone because they believed that the Hebrew religion was older than their religion, so they didn't worry about them. Jury was held captive to the Roman world, and the Pharisees allowed this as long as they had their little fiefdom. But when Christ appeared, he immediately challenged the Roman rule, as did the apostles after him. What that established was a new paradigm of civil action. No longer were the Christians happy just to exist within Rome, They wanted to transition Rome and make it a Christian nation. Christians would obey God rather than the evil dictates of Rome. Through their obedience to the commission of the dominion mandate, they were now going to reestablish what Adam had lost in the garden, but which Christ regained by his victory. And they were going to do that where they were planted in the Roman Empire. And by the declaration of the word of truth, the church was going to cultivate a righteous civil society. And so by... The 300s, after a series of 300 years of oppression, murder, and tyranny by the Roman Caesars, but with diligence, fortitude, and stick-to-itiveness, after 300 years of dreadful tyranny, the church finally, under Constantine, was liberated from the tyranny of Roman wickedness. And this is what set the stage for a Christianized Western civilization under God. And so from that time forward, through the Middle Ages, emperors and popes sought to evangelize the world with the law and the gospel. 
The mandate of Christ's gospel was being established by both the civil rulers and the ecclesiastical rulers. They were working together. Church and state were working together. Both the church and the state worked hand in hand to establish a godly culture under Christ and His law word because they knew that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And with that evangelism came the quest to establish a Christian commonwealth like in the days of the Hebrew Republic. And so by 800 AD, Charlemagne had Christianized much of Europe by structuring it according to the law of God. The Byzantium Empire already was structured according to the word of God, and that could be regarded as a Christian realm, as was England by the late Middle Ages. And while Christendom was only loosely established for lack of easy travel and communication, its foundations were theonomic and theocratic. This was the norm of Europe. Consider the problem that the reformers faced. Well, first, the Church of Rome had no stable foundation of truth. Well, they proclaimed the use of Scripture as their source of truth. They actually used the word of men, specifically the Pope, as their word of truth. The Pope would be infallible. What he ever said, that was what it was, even if, even if it contradicted the Bible. So Rome touted the Bible and the word of God, but that was only in name. In name only. The real authority was the Pope's interpretation of the Word of God. We find that even today. Ministers will interpret the Word of God according to their presuppositions. Of course, the Pope would interpret the Word of God and then they would write these ecumenical councils and policies which would then many times contradict the Word of Scripture. Moreover, the Roman Church was seeped in pagan ideas, Gnostic ideologies, and natural law theories of justice. And this rendered the Roman Church inadequate to bring the truth of God into the realm of the culture. And as a result, the church's failure to execute its dominion mandate, the age of faith, gave way to the Renaissance where man, not God, was the measure of all things. One of the hallmarks of the Renaissance was the worship of man and all that man could accomplish. It was simply a return to the foundation of ancient Greek and Roman ideas where man became preeminent. The Reverend Stephen Perks observes, he says this, Paganism in all its forms, is based upon the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Now this position places man as God not only determining what is good as opposed to what is evil, true in contrast to what is false, but what is real and logical as opposed to what is fantasy and illogical. The Renaissance's perception of reality was a man-centered perception as if this new birth of civilization had created its own reality. You see, that's what's happening today. Man is creating its own reality. A woman could be a man and a man could be a woman. Logic is thrown out. We're back to a pagan renaissance. And once man creates a perception that is not defined by scripture, the hope and glory of what the world should be is lost. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Once Adam adopted another perception of reality, another perception of truth, Eden was plunged into darkness along with the world and all of mankind with it. When Adam decided to neglect what God had taught him by reinterpreting the word of God after his own sinful imagination and neglecting the cultivation of the garden given to his stewardship, the original world as he knew it died. He was reinterpreting the world then after his own mind, his fallen mind, his fallible mind. And once that happened, once Adam violated his covenant obligation and decided to be led by his own intuition, he was unable to remake the world into what it once was. 
Everything would be opposite of what God had intended. And once he questioned the authority of God's commandment to actively subdue the earth and take dominion over it for the glory of God, he acted upon it, resulting in his and the entire global order's destruction. As soon as Adam adopted another idea, another perception, another worldview through his man-centered, self-reliant thought process, which was distinct from his creators, he acted upon it and the world was lost. Adam's self-induced perception of the world caused him to recreate a world which was diametrically opposed to God and his divine will. And by neglecting his commission of earth's cultivation, he destroyed the earth. And that's exactly what's happening today. The church has adopted the escapism to kingdom Lutheran theology, leaving the world to the wicked. And this is important for us to understand. Ideas have consequences. Adam adopted the idea which posited that God either did not mean what he said or he was mistaken in what he said. Man's perception of what is true both defines him and causes him to act accordingly. Adam's erroneous perception of the word of God and the commission of the earth's dominion led him into all kinds of mischief. Likewise, our perception of reality defines the world in which we live in. And by Adam's rebellious act, he created a world where man desires to be God, determining right and wrong for himself. The mind of man became the defining standard of all things. When Adam sinned, the age of Eden ended. The world which God had created was then transformed into something ugly and unsustainable as a result of a misguided perception of what God had said. Today, the church of Jesus Christ is saying, no, 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 God didn't say to go out there and change the world. We're just waiting for Jesus. The world that Adam lost immediately began to erode through the chaos of sin and man's depravity. And so when Eden's culture died, when that culture ended, a new culture appeared, which was very much unlike the original design, and one which would perpetuate the lusts of sinful men as they sought to redefine reality by their own rationale. And this is what the Two Kingdom Church has successfully achieved. It has created a world by their removal from the world. They have created a world which was patterned after the fallen world of man's perception because it has adopted another source of divine truth. What the Reformers set out to do, on the other hand, was to create a biblical model of society based upon the Holy Scriptures so as to conform the world to the will of God rather than the wicked, self-consuming inventions of man. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way. He says, Christianity is not merely religious truth. It's total truth for the total reconstruction of the world. Nancy Percy, like the Reformers, understood that once biblical Christianity is liberated from what she calls its cultural captivity and man's idea of truth, it would change the world. That was the goal of the Reformation. Notice what she says. We must liberate Christianity from its cultural captivity, unleashing its power to transform the world, not the church, but the world, through the Reformation of the church. That's what the Reformers wanted. They wanted to reform the church so they could transform the world. The church's cultural captivity is the heretical truncated idea of this two-kingdom mentality where its leaders posit the notion that the church should have nothing to do with changing the world by engaging the culture. 
And this idea is why we are in such a desperate situation. The reformers also understood that the starting point for change was God's revelation of himself, the Bible. It begins with the self, then moves into the family, then into the church, but it doesn't stop there. It finds its purpose in the world. And so the Reformation began by basing all ideas, doctrines, and practices for personal and cultural conformity to the will of God on Scripture. The inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture in its original languages in conjunction with its application to every area of life, every institution, every element of civilization was the key to total transformation and reformation. The reformers understood that once the scriptures are ignored, diluted, perverted, or twisted, or misunderstood, the culture suffers. If you misunderstand what God is saying about your mission in the world, the culture is going to smart for it. And so they adopted what was known as sola scriptura, only the scriptures. In order to bring order out of the chaos of human relativism, natural law and natural reason, the reformers looked at the revelation of God and they trusted in the word of God and applied it to every institution and area of life, including and especially law and government. They understood that the world belonged to God. Not just the church, but the world. And his intentions for the world that Adam lost were declared in his revelation. With this as their starting point, the reformers set out to conform all things according to the sacred scriptures beginning with the church. And this is why the Reformation is so important. Undergirding all of their reforms was the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They believed that as far as the scripture was concerned, God providentially and divinely preserved the writings of the scriptures as the testimony of himself, his Messiah, and his truth, for without them, mankind would be left to his own devices and the world would continue in its fallen, depraved state. But he gives the word of God in order for man to understand his purpose in the world, his commission in the world, that God is sovereign in the world, and he has called his people to go out and change the world. And for them, God was not only sovereign in the preservation of his word, he was sovereign in the salvation of man and the orchestration of history. The reformers believed that the sovereignty of God extended beyond man providentially into the culture and into every institution of life. And so armed with the biblical truths of God's revelation, the Reformation became one of the most influential and powerful forces of the known world, ultimately structuring what we know today as Western civilization. I submit to you this, that without the Reformation, we would not have the Western civilization that we have today. Now looking back on history, Luther's contention with the Roman church was only the spark that lit the flame. By the mid-1500s, the entire realm of what was then known as the Holy Roman Empire, which was made up of Europe, was buzzing with this new doctrine known as the Reformed Faith. Once the power of the Reformation reached Switzerland, men like William Farrell, Pierre Vire, John Calvin, Henrik Bullinger, John Knox also became figureheads of the reform movement. Calvin especially, almost single-handedly, set the stage so that the Puritans could bring reformational truths to bear upon the culture of the New World. Once Calvin settled in Geneva, he, along with his colleagues, immediately began the work of cultural reform. And if you're going to call yourself a Protestant church or a Presbyterian church or a reformed church, you must side with Calvin's vision. The reformation of the world. Calvin understood 
that the reformation of the church was absolutely necessary if any comprehensive cultural reform could be accomplished. And so on with scripture, he began the work of reforming the church so that the church could transform the world. His work was not done in a vacuum. Calvin's efforts were multifaceted. He also understood that if the church was to be reformed, the family had to be educated accordingly. Families had to be liberated from Rome's doctrine in order to live pleasing to God and to be cultural warriors in the warfare against the wicked. He saw fathers and mothers as the stewards of Christ's legacy who would promote the idea of the cultural mandate to their children. The Reverend Dr. Joseph Moorcraft comments, he says, Christian parents, as mediators of grace and truth under Christ, are to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, according to Ephesians 6.4. The word nurture involves the idea of education. The word is also used as a discipline in Hebrews 12.5. In 1 Corinthians, the word admonition implies counseling. So then... The threefold ministry of parents is Christian education, Christian discipline, and Christian counseling. Leave off any of these. You are not training your children biblically. Christian education, discipline, and counseling. And so once settled at Geneva, Calvin focused upon church reform, Christian education, government, law, and economics as a concern, usury, and business. His was a comprehensive plan, not a truncated plan, but a comprehensive plan to reform all aspects of Geneva's culture according to the word of God. It would be the city on a hill. It would be the light of the gospel to the nations. Scripture was to be his blueprint for kingdom action. His tactics were well-structured, tackling the important areas of Genevan society, all of which now provides for us a model of what we might do in our own community. They did the hard work. They did the heavy lifting. And we're sitting around just saying, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't get involved in the culture. Well, it is hard work, to be sure. But it's the work that we've been called to do. Number one, in his effort to reform the church, Calvin began by setting up a teaching schedule which was almost superhuman. Preaching daily. Think about his schedule. Preaching daily, one week on and one week off, Calvin taught from the Word using the expository method going through each of the books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, paragraph by paragraph. Both by his preaching and by his Bible studies, he was able to touch on every area of culture, addressing every topic which concerned almost every issue of human life under God. Secondly, with the help of Pierre Vire, he was able to establish a college and a seminary, preparing the next generation for the challenges that lay ahead. Third, Calvin also taught the youth and focused on the education of both old and young. He understood that as the family goes, so goes the church and then the entire nation. William Montner, in his book, Calvin's Geneva, explains it this way. He says, quote, Calvin's program of teaching was enforced in Geneva by a very thorough indoctrination. Genevan children were drilled on their catechism every Sunday noon until they can repeat from memory the essentials of their faith. Adults, too, were expected to undergo the same course of religious instruction. As late as 1557, 
the consistory discovered five old men who still could not give an account of their faith and ordered them to hire a tutor and learn their catechism before the next public communion. In January 1549, Genevan pastors and government, notice how they're working together, the pastors and the government, agreed that great troubles were descending upon their city. To forestall these calamities, they decided, church and state, they decided to announce to all heads of families that everyone should attend church more regularly and that children and servants should attend catechism. It was a law. You're not in church, you're going to the brig. That's how serious these people were because they knew if you were not trained biblically, you would be a drain on the culture. Number four. You see, Calvin had a full-orbed reorientation upon human life. In addition to preaching, teaching, writing and updating his institutes, writing his commentaries, writing his letters and his incredible wealth of correspondences, both domestic and international, he also involved himself in the affairs of state by injecting himself into the political, legal and economic life of Geneva. Think about that. Pastors injecting themselves into government into law and into the economics of the realm. And it was his influence by both word and deed that structured Geneva and made it the Christian model that it was. Number five, Calvin also insisted that the ministers of the gospel were to be given due respect as men and servants of God for the glory of God and for the good of the people and the Genevan Republic. As long as they were faithful, they were to be given their honor. And this way he commanded respect from both magistrates and parishioner for all those that faithfully expounded the word of God. Harrow Huffle, in his book, The Christian Polity of John Calvin, observes this, quote, Calvin had insisted that his parishioners at Geneva submit to their ministers even in his absence after his brief departure to Strasbourg. In an open letter to the Genevans of June 25th, 1539, the Genevans were to treat their ministers with the obedience and reverence due to the Lord's messengers and to maintain communion. In order to cement ministerial reverence and authority in the Genevan Republic, Calvin, with the blessing of the city fathers, formed a group called the Company of Pastors. This group became the leading religious force in Geneva with Calvin, not as the chief, but merely as one of its members. And yet, they were the counselors. You think about this. They were the counselors to the state. Mater explains, he says, Calvin, in concert with the company of pastors and his intimate colleagues, was able to monopolize Geneva's only mass medium. You think about, what was the mass medium back then? The pulpit. It was the pulpit. Notice, sermons were one principal form of public communication in the 16th century. And in Geneva, sermons were remarkably frequent. In the 1550s, sermons were being preached in her four churches on an average of a dozen times each week. We can't get people to come once a week. He continues, The effects of Calvin's sermons and those of his colleagues is, of course, impossible to measure precisely, but it must have been immense. End quote. Although Calvin would deal with the magistrates and his company of pastors as a pastor himself, he dealt with both groups distinctly. To the one, he presented himself as an ecclesiastical overseer and watchman over the affairs of the magistrates 
and their stately office. Think about that. Just think about that. He presented himself as the state's watchman to the other as a beloved father and colleague in the glorious effort to build the kingdom of God. Approximately one month before his death, in the spring of 1564, Calvin called his his beloved company of pastors to his bedside. But before that, he first called the magistrates of the city. When the magistrates arrived, he greeted them and thanked them for their unwarranted honor, which they had bestowed upon him because they understood his value to the community. Calvin then proceeded to admonish each of the magistrates for some of their bitterness and missteps. Can you imagine? Just before he's dying, he's admonishing them for what they've done wrong. And he told them this, When annoyed, we should not give the rein to our passions. Everyone should work according to his station and faithfully employ whatever God has given him in order to maintain this republic. A charge to the ministers of the state. Calvin then asked the magistrates that he be excused from all further responsibilities on account of his illness. Could you imagine? He's ready to die. May I be excused from my responsibilities. And then he closed with prayer and he bid them farewell. He then shook hands with each of the 25 members of the small council and took leave of all civil power. The day after, Calvin received his own colleagues, the company of pastors in his home for the last time. His message to his colleagues was one of an entirely different caliber than that of the magistrates. He rehearsed before them his trials and battles that he had faced at Geneva and encouraged them to continue in the faith which was given to them through the Holy Scriptures. Almost on the eve of his death, he's still ministering. He's still counseling. He didn't say after 20 years, I'm going to retire now. Thank you very much. Need my pension. I'm on my way to the Bahamas. There was no such thing. He encourages them that they too would face trials and testimonies which were in bitterness against them. He called them wondrous battles. Think about this. Cal is ready to die. They poisoned his friend V-Ray. Man was never well again after that. They sick their dogs on Calvin because they didn't like him in Geneva. They shoot guns into his window. And he calls these trials wondrous battles. Calvin says this, Thus, I have been in the midst of battles, and you will experience ones not less, but greater. For you are in a perverse and unhappy nation. You think about this, this was Geneva, a perverse and unhappy nation. How perverse and unhappy are we? Leaving off our mission to change the world? How perverse and unhappy are we? He continues. And although she has some honorable men, the nation is perverse and wicked. You will have your hands full after God has taken me. For even though I am as nothing, I know that I have prevented many tumults that might have taken place in Geneva. But take courage and fortify yourselves. For God will use this church and will uphold it. I assure you that he will preserve it. As for my doctrine, I have taught faithfully and God has given me the grace to write, which I have done as faithfully as I could. I have not corrupted a single passage of scripture nor knowingly twisted it. As for our internal affairs, you have elected Monsieur Theodore Beza to take my place. 
Take care to help him, for his burden is heavy and so difficult that he must necessarily be overcome by it. Take care to support him. As for him, I know he has a good will and will do what he can. May everyone keep his obligations, not only to this church, but also to the city, which we have promised to serve in adversity as well as prosperity, so that each man may continue his calling. Take care also that there be no teasing nor harsh words among you, since gibbs will sometimes be tossed about. For even though this be in jest, the heart will hold bitterness. Those things are trifles, and besides, they are not Christian. So refrain from them and live in good harmony and sincere friendship. Calvin then continued to rehearse before the company of pastors some of the issues facing Geneva and how the church at Bern had betrayed the church at Geneva because, as he stated, quote, they have always feared me more than loved me and still fear me more than loved me and have always been afraid that I will meddle with their Eucharist. He then abruptly concluded his speech. He shook hands with each of the company, knowing that they would not see Calvin again. They, many of them were weeping bursting into tears, bidding his farewell. Less than a month later, Calvin was dead. And yet, more than 500 years later, his legacy and his doctrine lives on. Not because it was his, but because it was God's. And by this time, the new world of the Americas was being colonized and the Reformed doctrine was being introduced to the new world, mainly through the work of Calvin's ministers, Beza and others. And by the early 1600s, Calvin's children, the Puritans, would continue the legacy but this time the Reformation would take root not only in Geneva, but across the Atlantic Ocean in a place called Massachusetts Bay Colony. And this was to be a city upon a hill. It was to be the new Hebrew Republic, structured by the law of God to the glory of God. We are inheritors of Calvin's Geneva, his doctrine and the doctrine of the Puritans. How did we leave off our mission? The Puritans would structure America in the way God would have it structured. They rejected Luther's two-kingdom idea and adopted Christ's dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28. But soon after that, apostasy set in and the darkness began to reign and men no longer saw the kingdom as the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. And that's where we find ourselves today. May God raise up future generations that understand and embrace this most important doctrine of cultural reconstruction in our time of great darkness. And this is our commission and our calling. May God give us that grace. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of that grace. Amen.